Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And uh, we've got three great ones for this lunchtime live that's especially helpful to those uh across the pond as they say who uh always ask for earlier show times ask and ye shall receive a very quick programming note we are doing a second show tonight 8 p.m eastern time live one-on-one with ross colthart he is the one that broke the story about the ufo whistleblower and uh, he has a book out in plain sight a new edition coming out And uh, we're going to be talking to him one-on-one from Sydney, Australia, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, unless you've been living under uh, an alien spacecraft somewhere. Uh, He's been out and about trending on Twitter uh, for weeks on end ever since that story broke. But, of course, uh, this afternoon we're here to talk about Corey Richens and Eric Richens and his two, three kids, I should say, more importantly. Uh, It is a twisted tale of a mom of three allegedly murdering her husband, Eric Richens, Uh, And then profiting from a children's book about grief, which we will ask the good doctor about in a little bit. Uh, She stands accused of poisoning husband Eric by spiking his celebratory Moscow mule, uh, his cocktail drink with five times the lethal dose of fentanyl. Uh, Not a very kind act, if in fact that is true. Uh, Best guest here today, uh, I think you know all three of them, Lee Wallace, uh, otherwise known as Harvard Lawyer Lee. Uh, She graduated first in her class at Vanderbilt University in cum laude from Harvard Law School. She was named one of the top 100 lawyers in Georgia and a Georgia super lawyer every year since the poll began. And she has repeatedly been named one of the top 50 female lawyers and one of the top 10 product liability lawyers in all of the Peach State, Georgia. She also has, as you're about to find out, a very popular (laughs) channel called Harvard Lawyer Lee where she breaks down complex legal matters. Next up in the reddish, maroonish sport coat, Dr. Joni Johnston. She is a forensic psychologist, a private investigator, and a crime crime writer as a practicing psychologist. Uh, She's worked in medium maximum security prisons for the Board of Parole for the Superior Court of San Diego and is a workplace investigator of misconduct allegations, including harassment, discrimination, and violence, and she is the author of Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. She also has her own YouTube channel, Unmasking a Murder. Greg Scordis needs his own YouTube channel, but he is such a prominent figure. He has no social media, does not care. He lives his own life, and he is uh, better off that way. Uh, he is representing, most importantly, the deceased husband, Eric Richens' family in this Twisted case, he's practiced law since 1982 uh, and began as a prosecutor at the Salt Lake Legal Legal Defenders Association. Without further ado, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are at Podcast STS. You can see right here already, Harvard Lawyer Lee. uh, The cries are already uh, going out for Harvard Lawyer Lee. Uh, you can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, which reminds me that the CTO better posted last night's episode. Uh, the merch store is open for business. Um, 
Greg Scordis, I'd like to start this off. You're uh, tight with the family. How is the family doing uh, this many weeks and uh, over a year uh, since the crime happened and a little while since the arrest? I think the family's doing really well, Joel. Um, the uh, defendant, of course, she's presumed innocent, is in custody. Uh, she's being held currently on a no-bail warrant because of the nature of the charges being in what we call aggravated murder in Utah, which carries the potential for a life in prison without the possibility of parole or potentially the death penalty. Uh, they feel like that the uh, the prosecutor and the and the Summit County, which is where the where she's being held, uh, police have got their uh, their case together very well. They're comfortable with the case that the prosecution's got, and they're looking forward to ha having the case go to trial and, and having her uh, adjudicated by a jury of her peers. And sorry, I'm having my grapefruit juice so I don't fall over. It's been quite the uh, week. Just finished my manuscript, my book. Felt like I gave birth to a baby and uh, feeling good but exhausted. So, uh, Sally Vella here, and uh, Greg, I'm just going to keep you muted because you have a little hiss going. It's Wednesday afternoon, so uh, we will have a little bit of fun with a not a very fun story here. Uh, Harvard lawyer Lee, the questions are coming in already from Sally Vella. With all the social media discovering that prosecutors around the nation are dropping the ball or incompetent, why, after public outcry, do administrations still struggle to act? Um, it's an interesting point. We're also covering uh, Thursday night, tomorrow night, the Suzanne Murphy case, the Colorado missing mom. She went missing on Mother's Day. Uh, they were set to bring the husband uh, to trial for murder, and uh, apparently the prosecution screwed up so badly that they dismissed the murder charges with nine days to go. Um, do you care to answer Sally's question? So I think that um, part of the issue may be a perception that's different from maybe the reality. For example, there's a lot more media attention through social media on what the prosecutors are doing. So I think we maybe highlight cases where the prosecution has dropped the ball more than we would have otherwise. So there's there may be some disconnect between what we know of now and the reality as to it being different from what it was before. It may really be that it's not all that different from what was there before. Mm. I mean, there's there's no question that we've seen some some appalling prosecution mistakes. And I think, for example, in the Lori Vallow Daybell case, you had the prosecution failing to produce documents and failing to participate in discovery until finally the the court said, look, I've got no choice but to do something. She said she needs an immediate trial and you aren't producing this stuff. I mean, she has the right to a speedy trial and you aren't giving it to her. Um, and I can't delay it anymore, but you haven't produced this information. And so the judge took the death penalty off the table. So that was a change in the entire case based on uh, prosecution error or a prosecution failure. So I, I understand what she's saying. And you do wonder if the world is getting crazier, if prosecutors are getting worse, or if it's just a matter of the world shrinking due to social media and everyone uh, being on top of everything, um, you know, almost instantaneously. Davina Wilson says, uh, good evening from Germany. Great to be able to catch this live. The case is fascinating. So looking forward to hearing it. Shaquille Oatmeal, my favorite name. Uh, the former basketball player, now announcer for TNT, is joining the uh, – discussion. Howdy, howdy, best show on YouTube. Um, Dr. Joni, to you, um, sort of from a high-level macro perspective, if she did in fact this, uh, commit this crime 
and she's out writing a children's book and going on TV to promote it and profiting from it. What does this say about the type of person she is? Um, is it narcissistic behavior? Um, is it just behavior of an evil human being? How do you see it? Well, it certainly shows us that she is wanting to get as much attention and sympathy as possible. And so not only has she allegedly committed this crime, but she's willing to go, you know, to go out there and really portray herself as a victim, you know, as somebody who was, you know, the unfortunate, you know, who's the, who was the unfortunate widow of this tragic circumstance. And the fact that she's also really involving her children in this, I think does speak to a certain level, I think, of arrogance, you know, and perhaps a lack of empathy on her part. I mean, I'm, I'm always reluctant to kind of diagnose somebody with narcissism. We can talk about narcissistic behaviors. And I think when, you know, she certainly has demonstrated some and, and some of the things that she's said, that she's written, some of the actions people have talked about with her, there's no question about that. But in terms of diagnosing her with a personality disorder, obviously I'd have to see her. But it is really, ast you know, astounding. It does take this case in some respects to a whole different level, you know, not in terms of what's happened, because that was just horrendous enough. But in terms of, again, this not, not only not kind of staying under the radar if she in fact did this, but, you know, trying to profit from this event is really, I think, is something I have not seen very often. Um, Can I say something uh, about that? I, I really, I, I agree with, I definitely agree with what she's saying. And I think that it, that's one of the reasons why the facts and the decision, the determination about whether she committed the crime is so important. Because on the one hand, if she committed the crime, there's this huge mental issue that's there. There's a psychological issue that's really disturbing. If she didn't commit it, then the things she did are normal. And that's one of the things that makes this case so important and the facts of the case so important. That That's a really interesting distinction. Correct. If she did not do it, uh, it wouldn't be so odd to go on a Salt Lake City local TV show to, to promote a book. Uh, the problem is, uh, at this point, uh, Harvard Lawyer Lee, you know way better than me, but there appears to be a preponderance of evidence uh, going uh, in the negative direction uh, against her. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Catherine Regier, who watches us in Hawaii and has a license plate in Hawaii from Hawaii, and what appears to be a Tesla there that says kind says Harvard lawyer Lee and our favorite movie star lookalike Joni Johnson, who they say looks like Ashley Judd. And I got to say, she sort of does. Um, the cries for Harvard lawyer Lee continue and they're coming in for Greg Scordis, too, from Catherine Regier. Um, by the way, uh, Dr. J, Joni Johnston. I love it. Dr. J. I have, uh, by the way, an autographed in mint condition. Eight and a half by 11 movie. I don't know what you call it, like a movie. It's a photo of the movie that Dr. J, Julius Irving, was in in 1979, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. And I still have it. My parents had the same life insurance agent, believe it or not, as Dr. J. And I have a ton of Dr. J autographs. And I'm hoping that that helps me retire in a few more years. I've saved it since 1979. But anyway, I digress for a moment. Uh, <laughs> Joni Johnston, my mother, who's a therapist, um, she gets worked up now when people uh, kind of toss around the word narcissist. Um, she feels it's a little too broad and too overly used. Do you agree with her at all? Or is she just, uh, I don't know, making hay out of nothing? 
I, I really agree with her because I think that as we've all become more sophisticated psychologically, I think that the world has shrunk in a lot of respects. We've become smarter legally. I think the average person knows more about the law than they used to. They know about psychology more than they used to. And so I think some of the terms that we used to reserve kind of for clinical diagnoses have kind of become buzzwords almost. And so the word narcissism can mean anything from somebody who truly does have a personality disorder to somebody who I don't like. You know, or, or who I think is selfish or self-centered or who hurt my feelings in some way. And so I think that's why it is kind of it's important to be careful when we use those terms, because these diagnoses were initially created really for insurance companies to understand and for clinicians to be able to say, OK, if this person has this diagnosis, that means they have this cluster of symptoms that I can understand, and I can now figure out what treatment is best for this person based on these symptoms. Um, it wasn't necessarily for us to diagnose ourselves or to diagnose other people that are in our lives that are doing things that may be hurtful, uh, but doesn't mean they have some kind of personality disorder. That's so interesting. My dad was a psychiatrist, and he used to say the same thing. He'd say these diagnoses, all these labels are there uh, in the DSM, so prescriptions can be uh, prescribed, medications can be prescribed. Uh, interesting to hear from you. Uh, this is why I like doing early shows. Hi from Bavaria in Germany. Great channel. Welcome, Germany, to the show. Uh, Greg Scordis, uh, to you, and I will unmute you. Um, the latest development here is that, is that Corey Richens' housekeeper, who is a convicted drug dealer, she's confessed to selling Corey two batches of fentanyl uh, in the weeks before she allegedly used some to poison her husband. Uh, this woman's name is Carmen Marie Lauber, and she was first linked over a series of text messages to Corey Richens. Um, how does this either complicate or uncomplicate the story, and what does this mean for Carmen Lauber, 51 years old? Well, to answer your first question, Joel, this, this actually sort of help solve the puzzle. It really put the pieces together for the prosecution once they once they had the source of the fentanyl, which ultimately killed uh, Eric. So having the drug dealer come forward and uh, admit that she sold these drugs to Corey, admit the timing of it, which was absolutely consistent with the uh, homicide, uh, really, I think, made the case, although I thought, I think the case had, the state had a compelling case beforehand, but it certainly made it stronger uh, what it means for her, I don't know. I mean, I was a prosecutor for eight years, and you, you, you know, you have to take your witnesses as you get them. And nobody likes to have a witness that gets some sort of a plea bargain in exchange for testimony because that, by almost by definition, taints their testimony. So you would hope that uh, the state is fair with her, that her testimony is based on the truth and not based on some uh, quid pro quo that hey, you say this and we'll give you that. But I, from what we've seen of her so far, uh, she's been honest and, and upfront with the state and is coming forward because she feels like it's the right thing to do. Uh, STS, get us those questions and you've got three amazing experts. So anything you want to know about Corey Richens, now is the time uh, to ask. To you, Harvard lawyer Lee, uh, this is according to a search warrant affidavit related to this Ms. Lauber woman, the uh, uh, suspected drug dealer and housekeeper, uh, the quote from the affidavit, Lauber or Lauber admitted to supplying Corey Richens with 15 to 30 fentanyl pills. It sounds like it could kill a horse. 15 to 30 fentanyl pills on two separate occasions, approximately one month before Eric's death. 
She stated Corey paid her approximately 900 each time she supplied the pills. She provided details of the solicitation of the drugs, the pickup and drop-off locations, and other pertinent details that have been corroborated with digital uh, forensic evidence. Um, how does this hold up in a court of law in terms of evidence against Corey Richens in a criminal case? Well, I think Greg's absolutely right that there already was some evidence of this. I mean, we already had the lead investigator talking about the interviews with her, about things that she'd said, about corroboration through the cell phones and where they were located, that they were at the gas station where the purchase was made, that there was communication with the person who sold the drugs to her. And so there were, the state was already working on a lot of corroborating detail around that. But the confession makes, as just as you said, makes it even easier. It makes it easier um, for the state to say, this is all true and there's a lot of stuff around this where we can prove that it really happened just the way that she said it did. Anytime you have a witness who has a criminal past and who is accused of a deal, uh, making a deal to avoid prosecution. Anytime you have that sort of issue, you're going to have people have questions. You're going to have people wonder, are they really telling the truth or are they just trying to strike a deal and to avoid prosecution? So as the state builds around the testimony, there's the confession, then there's cell phone evidence, then there's things she said to the police when she was interrogating. They built out and around that, and that's how they create some stability around witness who otherwise might be a little shaky. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Johnston, to you, a question that repeatedly comes up that I haven't seen today but will probably pop up again is that she allegedly tried to poison him once before, and everyone says, well, why did he stick around? I've asked Greg Scordis. He says the answer is simple. He has three young boys. Um I would even go a step further. I, I don't think that question would be posed necessarily of a woman. Why did she stick around? Um, can you talk about, um, you know, your thoughts on why he stayed? And is there any kind of double standard when it comes to men and women who are in a sort of a domestic violence situation? Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I have to say I have heard that question posed quite a lot. To, even with women, you know, who stayed and ended up being murdered, who said things to their friends, like if anything ever happens to me or I'm worried that my husband's going to try to kill me or I found these pills in a briefcase and I'm concerned about this or whatever. So I think, you know, there's a couple of takeaways for me here. One is, as we all know, we, we've all been in relationships and we know that when we're in a relationship, it looks different. And it feels different than people on the outside looking in, particularly we know the outcome. We know the end of the story, at least in terms of this unfortunate situation. And so I think that not only do they have three kids together, they have a history together. And, you know, it's relationships were complicated. And so on the one hand, it sounds like Eric was aware that some things were not right, that some things were, were, you know, were horribly wrong, and he was concerned about it. He was taking some steps to make sure that he was protected financially, his kids were protected financially, and at the same time, it's a very difficult decision. You know, you don't want to have a divorce. You don't want your kids to be split up or to have to go to different houses. And so, you know, oftentimes, I mean, we know that people who are in physically abusive relationships, you know, oftentimes take five to seven times to leave. They'll leave five or six times before they finally make that break. So it's a process. And, and I have a sense that maybe um, Eric was in that process. It just um, happened before he was able to leave or escape. 
Uh, Tenacious P says, hi, Joel, joining you from France, usually from Manchester, UK. Hi to Lee. Love her. One's got to get Lee in there, which I love. Um, this is totally off topic, but let's go here for one second to Harvard lawyer Lee on this. Um, totally off topic. And she admits it, except uh, generational general topic of murderesses. Panel, have you any thoughts about the Manson girl, Leslie Van Houten, being released on parole despite a life sentence? She's free. Her victim's still in their graves. A massive story. Steve Cohen is going to get me, Leslie Van Houten. It's the last thing he ever does as a, as a guest on this show, although I don't think it's going to happen, but we're going to try. Um, but Harvard lawyer Lee, what do you think of that uh, uh, parole being uh, issued in her case? I don't know a lot about what the evidence was against her specifically. I mean, the Manson case is infamous, but I don't really know. Was she very tangential to the matter? I don't honestly know. So I don't know that I have a have an opinion that's intelligent about it. It's certainly the reason it made all the news is because there's that feeling like, wow, why? Why is she getting off when there are victims who never get the chance again. Why is she getting out? Is that really fair? And I think that's there's that gut reaction, and that's why it makes the news. 51 years she spent behind bars. Uh, quickly, Greg Scordis, do you have anything on that at all? Well, I mean, I, to me, Joel, 51 years is a life sentence. I mean, the person that exits prison 51 years after they enter is not even the same person. And uh, let's say she was in her 20s, now she's in her 70s. I mean, I can understand the victim's families maybe feeling like, hey, it was a homicide. We lost a life. There's no reason for her to ever be paroled. But a person can, I mean, she can, who knows what she's done since she's been in prison. The fact that she's being paroled makes me feel like she's probably done what she's supposed to do. She's probably shown some level of rehabilitation, some level of repentance. Um, you know, 51 years, in my opinion, I've practiced law for 41 years, is really a life sentence. Except, except you love what you do, Greg. So no less you. And Greg, right back to you. So back to this Carmen Lauber, the housekeeper. Uh, again, according to uh, court documents, this is a quote. She was identified as being a housekeeper, often used by Corey for her residential real estate business. Um, are they going to lean on her, um, and you know, just to squeeze as much information out as possible? And do you think um, because her attorney is publicly concerned, you know, that she's now going to face criminal charges. How do you think it's going to unfold? Well, the state's got to do something to make sure that she's both available and honest and upfront. And that's going to be difficult because she has charges of her own. She may very well testify in uh, in jail clothes if she's in custody at the time. Uh, that, that makes it hard. I mean, I've prosecuted cases where you use, and I hate to use the word snitches, but I mean, that's, let's face it, that's what people consider witnesses like this and, and they're 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 almost tainted from the beginning joel a jury figures them to be suspect uh, they've got their own baggage they're often seen as uh, looking for something in terms of a deal for them in terms of their testimony but there's corroboration and what the state will do is they will corroborate her testimony they will say they will ask her to say what happened and describe what happened and then they'll show how that's true how the information that that she describes is corroborated. That is to say, she, she said, I sold her fentanyl. Eric died of fentanyl. Uh, she said, I sold her on such such a day. She could prove that, that Corey actually paid her on, on that date. So while her testimony is suspect, if it's corroborated by evidence from the state, 
it gives it much more credibility with the jury, and that's what the state needs when they have a witness like that. Uh, Astra asking, are you going to send a shipment of books to the UK for us? I definitely am. How about that? I'm going to definitely do that. Lorna McKenzie says Van Houten should not have been released, in my opinion. Uh, must be so weird. And that's a whole other show. But imagine going into prison in 1971, I think, and coming out in 2023. Uh, Got to be really bizarre. Uh, Tilo, sucks to be you. I'm listening at work. Great show. But hope you're having fun at work. Say hi to people next to you and uh, send them my wishes. Um, so, uh, Lee, back to you. There's a civil suit filed in this case as well on both sides, which is really interesting. We'll get into why and what does it all mean. But um, um, this housekeeper is named by initials uh, in the civil suit filed by Eric Richens' estate against Corey Richens' estate, uh, writing, upon information and belief in early February 22, uh, Corey asked uh, an acquaintance known as CL, that is a housekeeper, to procure some uh, fentanyl for her. Again, same question to Greg. Uh, to what extent are they going to squeeze her here, try to get her to you know, either plea out or get information? And is she going to get uh, indicted criminally uh, in this case, which my understanding is that she hasn't so far? So they've already squeezed her pretty hard, I think. They've pushed pretty hard on that. And I think that Curry Richens' attorney, Sky Lazaro, made some serious headway on that, some decent headway on that at the bail hearing. She asked some questions and went through sort of the history of what exactly had been done to promise her or to suggest to her that she would get some kind of benefit if she would testify. And the state was real careful to say there was no quid pro quo, there wasn't a deal, no promises. But at the same time, they did tell her they would go speak to the prosecution in other cases against her, and they did that. So I think that's already definitely an issue in the case. And I thought that it was um, handled a good deal at the bail hearing. I think it will raise its head at the trial without question. Um, Laura Ferris writes, Greg is the best, all caps, represented my daughter and I when sued civilly by her attacker, kindest, most genuine man. Uh, Greg, do you recall this? I do. I do a lot of victim advocacy, and that's why I'm involved with this case. Uh, I represent the local rape recovery center and represent a lot of victims of uh, not only uh, sexual abuse, but child abuse and that type of thing. It's just something that I do. Um, I do a pro bono, and uh, I remember this situation very, very well. Her daughter was the nicest person in the world. Mm. Kudos to Greg Scordis, a good man on top of being a good lawyer. Um, Dr. Joni Johnston, so uh, according to this civil suit, um, either that same day, this is a quote, or the next day, this housekeeper, CL, delivered those pills to Corey uh, by hand in the driveway of CL's home. There were drug deals going down at the housekeeper's house, um, and she arranged to buy more fentanyl from the same acquaintance, which she delivered. Um, what is your take on the housekeeper um, in terms of her actions? I mean, do you think she knew the end goal here, the end game? Um, is it just a matter of, you know, I'm only worried about money. It's a, it's a greed issue. How do you see it? 
I mean, I've certainly interviewed many people um, who are in, incarcerated who have been part of drug deals and those kinds of things. And it wouldn't surprise me if she had some potential suspicions in her mind about what this might be used for. She's probably, if she's been a housekeeper, she might have observed some interactions, observed Corey. But I think that um, my sense is she probably had the blinders on. You know, meaning this is my job. This is what I've been hired to do. This is what I'm getting money for. And so I, it's none of my business uh, what happens after that. So, you know, I, like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if she had some suspicions or some inklings about what might be happening. But again, I think that'd be pretty easy, perhaps in her mind to kind of go again. That's not anything, unfortunately, right? We'd like to think that she'd go to the police or, or let somebody know or tell somebody, but if you're the one who's supplying drugs illegally, you're not going to be a whistleblower probably to law enforcement. Uh, Julie Fru from the UK hopping in here. Question for Greg. Uh, will the civil cases be heard before the criminal case? Hope so, as she'll have to testify. And we'll get into the problems with all that in just one moment. Greg? Uh, actually, it's sort of been understood by everyone that the civil cases will be put on hold until the criminal case is resolved for the exact reason that you just mentioned. And the civil cases are uh, related to the estate, obviously, and, and were brought about after uh, Eric's sister had filed a petition for, um, for probate, really. And then the, the spark started flying. And actually, part of that it even began before the criminal case was filed. But there's been a sort of a truce on the civil case because if, if Corey's convicted, that her civil claim is really meritless. And if she's not, then I guess the judge will let her proceed. But the, the, the questioner is absolutely right. If the civil case proceeds, she'll have to testify and she'll have to assert the Fifth Amendment for virtually everything she says. So it, it's really not much value to proceed on the civil case. Um, and then we've got uh, here... Uh, from Jenny, I believe. Hi from Wales, UK. Superb Ellen Greenberg show yesterday. Fantastic. Um, for those who don't know, Ellen Greenberg was a elementary school teacher engaged. Uh, she was living in Philadelphia in 2011. She's found dead with 20 stab wounds and 10 of them to the back of her body. Two after an independent autopsy confirmed she had already died. It was ruled a homicide very shortly after switched to undetermined. And then a few months later, change to a suicide and uh, we are all over this case uh greg just talked about you know justice and advocating for those who uh need the help and the Gold, uh, greenberg family josh and sandy definitely need some help uh, wendy murphy who's a very well-known uh domestic violence uh attorney in boston she's stepping in to help and has already reached out to the parents and uh we're trying to organize some protests and make some noise. Uh, most people believe this is uh, an absolute travesty of justice, and I'd love to get uh, this panel back on for that. But for now, we are sticking with this. Um, Harvard lawyer Lee, um, the state came out and just overtly said that the motive here, um, even though they don't, they don't really need, the burden is not on them to, to prove motive here, but they said that they believe that Corey Richens killed Eric over a $2 million mansion that she wanted to buy and flip. Um, how helpful is this to the case that they've kind of streamlined it, uh, put it into essentially one sentence nugget for jurors to hear? Do you believe that uh, greed was the motive? I, I think it's really important for the state to, if at all possible, establish a motive, because I think that helps the jury move past the why question because when you've got a circumstantial evidence case in particular you the jury really has to 
answer that question. Why? Because it's just hard for them to make a conviction if they just aren't sure about that. So I think it's wise of the state to offer a motive. And I think it goes even beyond that $2 million house. Based on what we saw in the civil case that was filed by Katie Richens, um, I, that lists a number of financial issues that were surrounding the relationship between Corey and Eric. And so she says, for, for example, there were issues related to tax payments that had been made to Eric where he was supposed to, he got a check from his company and that was supposed to go to a tax payment. But it didn't. And even beyond that, this complaint says that Corey told the accountants, oh yeah, that's been paid. Paid that. Paid that check over. And it hadn't been. So there were problems created upon problems by the fact that she was saying she had paid it and really hadn't in addition to taking the money. And there were things like taking, um, th there were things she had done related to a power of attorney and she had taken out a loan on the, the marital home, or it could have been Eric's home, depending on, I suppose, your argument, but she'd taken out a loan on the home without giving any kind of uh, warning to Eric that she had done that. And she did that pretending that he had approved it by using the power of attorney. So we got a lot of leads on where the state's going to take this argument, even though it didn't all come out at that bail hearing. We can bet that the state is going to take all of those same arguments that Katie Richens used and use them then at trial. Harvard lawyer Lee, one of the best at breaking it all down for us simple folk like me. Uh, Angela uh, Peppel says, uh, Dr. Joni, she is a control freak, uh, not Harvard lawyer Lee, but uh, Corey Richens is. Uh, she wrote a book to tell her kids how they were supposed to grieve the loss of their dad. Uh, and then this comment, why didn't she donate proceeds of the book to charities of children dealing with grief? Um, is this woman just greedy and money hungry? Um, how do you assess that from a psychological standpoint? Well, I really think Lee hit the nail on the head when she was talking about the fact that there's this track record of um, Corey Richens being dishonest around finances, not taking her husband's wishes into consideration, going around his back, lying to people in order to get money. So I think it is going to be important not just to show that, that maybe this house was the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for her, but that this is something leading up that's a long time pattern for her. This is somebody who, you know, it, one of the things I do want to talk about is this whole issue. Sometimes I think people kind of go, well, they had enough money. Why would she need more money? Why do people need more money? And I think in my mind, there's such a difference between wealth and greed. You know, somebody who is, is greedy, which is almost like a personality trait, it's that money represents so many things to them. It says who they are as a person. And it also um, is never enough. So it's, not, it's like there's a hole inside and there's never going to be enough money. So you and I can kind of go, my God, this, they had more money than, you know, than most people will ever see in their lifetime. That's not the issue, I don't think, for Corey Richens, if all the allegations are true, you know, and all this kind of comes to light, is that, you know, she, number one, did want to be in control of the finances. She wanted to be perceived as successful. Um, she wanted to be in the driver's seat in some respects, and she was willing to do whatever it takes. And she has a track record of doing that around money. And Joni, one of the things that really stands out, I think, to a lot of people is physically, when you look at Corey Richens, she's an attractive woman. He's an attractive man. They're kind of an all-American looking family. 
she looks sort of demure, you know, like she, you know, couldn't hurt a fly. Um, how do looks deceive us sometimes? Well, they do. And, you know, it's so funny because I think as kids, we see these scary movies and we have this idea of the monster and, you know, and the, the people who they're almost physically ugly on the outside because that reflects the evil inside. And we all grow up with that image. You know, there's all these you know thriller slasher movies with people with masks on and all kinds of things. And even though we grow up. When we all grow up and we realize that, no, we're not going to encounter Jason or you know, whoever um, with the mask on. I think we do sometimes, you know, there is this kind of attractiveness bias that continues for us as adults. We tend to like people who are more physically attractive. We tend to associate beauty with goodness. Um, and that's been, you know, kind of replicated that research over and over again. And then we look at somebody who's not only attractive, but appears so wholesome and so, you know, so innocent. And it can be very difficult to separate out that how somebody looks on the outside and how they are on the inside can be dramatically different. And Johnny, speak for yourself. We don't all grow up. I think you'll notice that if you read my book and uh, <laughs> sent a copy to the boss. Uh, she's reviewing it right now. She told me she was going to cut me out of her will if she didn't like it. So uh, I'm walking on eggshells right now. <laughs> uh, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, that was a viewer kimmy wells coming to us from germany another german in the house shout out to kimmy wells love the name kimmy by the way uh greg scordis uh interesting question here how hard will this to uh, be to prove in a court of law that the deceased eric richens did not take the uh, fentanyl on his own uh, obviously the defense is going to try to muddy the waters and say hey maybe he wanted to take his own life she was a horrible person it was too stressful with three boys um how do we know? How are they going to play that? How's that going to play out in court? It's a good question. And I can tell you a couple of things, Joel. One, uh, Eric had no history of uh, substance abuse whatsoever. He had no history of opioid use, opioid abuse, or drug abuse of any sort. He was an outdoorsman. He was active in his community. He was active in search and rescue. So he wasn't the kind of person that took opioids, and there was absolutely no history of that. Second, even if he was, and, and he wasn't, People who use drugs often overdose, but this was a five times the lethal limit uh, overdose. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that a drug user just, oops, I took a little too much, or I, I you know, I usually take one. Today I was having a bad day. I took two, and it, and it got to me. I mean, this was this wasn't the kind of thing that a drug user does. He had no reason to harm himself. He wasn't suicidal by any means. Um, it wasn't an accidental overdose. It wasn't a a suicide. And I don't think that the state's going to have to spend too much time uh, overcoming those, although you could imagine that the defense, and, and Corey does have a very good lawyer, uh, will try to make some pay with the jury in terms of creating some doubt about uh, his his manner of death. And we're going to get into the uh, dueling civil cases in just a moment. Uh, Helen is watching us from just south of Atlanta, Georgia. That is Harvard Lawyer Lee territory right there. Uh, but what is not is Sydney, Australia, and that is where Ross Coltpart is going to be tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time. We do a one-on-one -on -one interview with the king of all things ex extraterrestrial, UFO, UAP, and uh, alien-like. Um, Joni, I wanted to go back to you because it's, it's interesting. Go back to the money motive. Um, there are reports that uh, she was about to be cut out of Eric's will, and even on the day that she was told that, um, there was some sort of party that was being planned right after his death. 
Uh, but she went basically, for lack of a better term, ballistic on Eric's sister when she told him, uh, told her that she was being cut out of his will. She physically tried to attack her. Um, does that just underscore this whole greed motive? And what does it say about a human being who, after finding out the husband has just died, is lunging reportedly at the sister-in-law? I think it does speak to um, how important money is to this person. Um, and I think it does kind of demonstrate this kind of rage that's underneath this desire for all this money and, and you know, and to be in the driver's seat. So absolutely, I think it speaks to that. You know, it's funny, but I wrote an article one time called The Psychological Profile of a Poisoner. And, and, and one of the things that was interesting is there seems to be some kind of some common personality traits among, among people or murderers who pick poison. And oftentimes they're able to kind of engage in a lot of impression management with their family. They'll be, appear to be loving toward a spouse that they're planning to kill, for example. You know, oftentimes when somebody stabs somebody to death or they strangle somebody, there's a history of domestic violence, for example. When you have poison, however, that oftentimes isn't the case. The person tends to be sneaky. And um, the number one motive for poisoners is money, which I think is kind of interesting. However, if the person is caught um, attempting to do that, then you are more likely to see this violence and this aggression come out. And I thought that was interesting when I was reading some of the alleged facts of this case, that there's, there's really some, some overlap there between what the research says, which is pretty limited, and some of the facts that are alleged in this case. Mm. Uh, very interesting. Raul Thomas, does Joel have any eight? Uh, by 11 signed Shaq photos. Uh, I do not. However, I have a couple of really funny Shaq stories I'll share in another day. I've met him on different occasions in very weird and strange places. Once with my mother and once with uh, someone I was hanging out with. Let's put it that way. Um, both times were funny. I'll share them a different day. They're too long, too complicated, but Shaq was a good guy. Bought us some drinks. Um, over to this story here. Olive Heatley. Uh, Corey Richens, um, Greg, should concentrate on her defense instead of civil proceedings for money. So there is a new $13 million lawsuit uh, that uh, the family of Eric Richens has filed, basically uh, claiming that she, Corey, tried to profit from uh, his passing. And that comes after a civil suit on her side. But as it pertains to the Richens family, a lawsuit. What do you know about it? And uh, is it justified in being filed? You know, I, having read the lawsuit, I think that it, it has some merit, but that's for the civil lawyers to decide. I mean, certainly if, if Corey did this and she's presumed innocent, there's no there's no limit to what a civil lawsuit would, would have. I mean, there's no limit to what value a civil lawsuit would have. And, and really, people People don't keep this in mind, really, but the, the Richens family is concerned about the Richens boys. They're concerned about those three boys, and anything that they're trying to recover is to help the boys. Corey's lawsuits have all been about Corey and, and trying to get as much money into her pockets as possible. At least that's the way I read them. So it's not like the, the Eric Richens uh, family is trying to enrich themselves. They, they're not. They're, that's the least of their concerns. They're filing this on behalf of the children and everything they're doing is on behalf of those boys. And Greg, how are the boys doing? Um, are they with family members? Can you tell us? They're with a family member, a, a, a close family member. They're in the community. Importantly, they're together. The three boys are, are living together as a family. 
And uh, by all accounts, they're in very, very good hands. Um, trying to, I mean, hopefully staying out of the fray as much as possible. Uh, I know that's almost impossible, but by all accounts, they're doing very well. And this is where true crime kind of, I don't know, at times I, it makes me stop and think, because if you do stop and think about those three boys, um, their lives are, are forever altered, will never be the same. Uh, while we go on to different stories, they'll be dealing with that when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, hopefully 90, 100. It will never leave them. Um, Looky Lou here, uh, Dr. Joni. Any comment on Corey's psyche when she goes, uh, we talked about it a little bit, but when she goes on a national morning show wearing that bulky, ugly brown jacket with her hunched over bad posture, it's almost like Lucky Lou is applying. She was trying to hide from the world. What did you make of her appearance there in terms of her actual appearance? Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know that I want to be the fashion police <laughs> because I, I don't remember actually seeing, I saw her, the interview with her, and I think I was so caught up. And the fact that she would appear on a show, you know, um, as this kind of sympathetic figure whose you know, main goal now in life is to guide her three young boys through this horrible thing that's happened and, and that kind of thing. That I'm not, not sure I paid too much attention to that. But so it's hard for me to think that she was trying to disappear uh, because it's my understanding, and I could be wrong here, that she actually had contacted the TV show made an inquiry herself. They didn't reach out to her. That was my understanding. So somebody correct me um, if I'm wrong there. So I, I don't see her as somebody who is shrinking from anything, certainly not from sympathy or public attention. So whether the body, we need to get our, your body language expert on to be talking about the, the hunching over or the posture thing, but in terms of the, of the you know, of the brown jacket, I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, like I said, as a psychologist, I was so captivated by, you know, after the fact, re-watching that interview and just how she presented herself as, as such a sympathetic figure. We will get the body language expert. And Dr. Johnny, you could be the fashion police. You're very fashionable, so it's not coming to you. like a shrug. Pull it off. Um, I wasn't going to go here, but Harvard lawyer Lee, this came up last time quite a few times. Um, and she's asking Dr. Johnson, but uh, to you, Harvard lawyer Lee, uh, there was life insurance plans taken out on the children, which raised eyebrows. It raised my eyebrows, but then I've since come to find out that it's not that unusual, uh, maybe in this circumstance it is, but people do take out life insurance on children in the case of, God forbid, a death, and they can't afford, let's say, funeral expenses, things of that nature. But how did it strike you when you found out this news? I think the same way. It's It struck me as concerning because what if what that meant was that she had a plan to kill her own children in order to collect the insurance. But I think that that is something a lot of people do. I don't think it's maybe the best financial choice. <laughs> Not that I'm an insurance uh, person, but I don't think it's probably the best financial choice to insure a child. It could actually be used by her side to say, look, she just believed in insurance, believed in insuring everybody. It isn't like she killed the children. She just thought everybody should have insurance. So she took out policies on Eric for exactly the same reason, because that's going to be one of the issues is the 1.5 million in insurance policies she took out on Eric. And according to um, the complaint filed by Katie Richens Benson, that was something Eric didn't know about. Uh, Ketchup, who used to be in South Florida and I think is now in uh, the great state of North Carolina, always the best show on earth. When are you bringing Corey's lawyer, Sky Lazaro, back on 
Uh, we've had her on the show for different stories. Um, and I did reach out to her about this. Uh, she is uh, pretty inundated, I believe, and uh, laying low. Uh, she pretty much told me flat out uh, she cannot talk about the case, which is not unusual at all. But hopefully once uh, there is a, uh, a trial and a verdict, uh, we will get her on here and uh, get the scoop. But I am uh, staying uh, in touch with her. Uh, Greg, back to you. So this suit still on the, on the uh, side of the uh, Richens family alleged that uh, Corey was funneling cash from uh, her husband's bank accounts, uh, intended to cover his taxes. She also obtained a $250,000 fraudulent loan, as we just talked about. Uh, she was also uh, taking out, quote unquote, secret um, insurance plans. Here's a list of some of the things that she stole. The $225,000 in cash, um, a theater room furniture, there's a movie theater in the house, an electric motorcycle, a flatbed trailer, off-road vehicles, ATVs, uh, all estimated to be worth $300,000. Does this just um, help the state immensely that they can literally list off a laundry list of items that she was taking from them? Uh, as a way to prove their motive, which appears, again, to be greed. Yeah, and, and even more importantly, Joel, they can prove her financial condition at the time of his death. She was in she was in dire straits. She was uh, uh, strung out on some uh, credit card debt, really uh, uh, sort of maxed out, I should say, on credit card debt. She was had a debt outstanding to a hard money lender. Uh, she was she was in, I mean, while, while Eric was, doing very well financially. Corey wasn't. She was she was terrible with money. And so once he passed, it it was in her best financial interest to try to grab as much as she could. I mean, she was literally drilling his, having a locksmith drill his safe, uh, which had cash in it, within days of his death. And before anyone could start probate or sort of let's settle things down and see where the the, where where the assets go and make sure the boys are taken care of. I mean, she was she was in a yard sale liquidation as quickly as she could uh, because I assume she could see the writing on the wall at some point and realize she had to grab everything she could. Hmm. Um, to you, Harvard lawyer Lee here from uh, Frankie Figs, who's a friend of the show. Um, and this kind of goes back to a question we asked of Greg. Isn't this going to be difficult to prove in that there is no proof of the actual drugging uh, can you address how this might play out during the uh, criminal trial during that cycle? Well, I think Frankie's gone straight to the heart of the case, the hardest issue in the case, because the state is going to have to prove not just that Corey Richens bought fentanyl, but that she is the one who who gave and orchestrated the murder of her husband uh, with the fentanyl. Now, they've got an autopsy report that says that the fentanyl was ingested, not just um, in any other way that it actually was ingested, but she herself volunteered that to the police that she had made her husband a Moscow mule. They don't have a glass, as I understand it, and the body cam, from what I, we haven't seen it, but from what the descriptions, doesn't show the glass, say, sitting on the side of the bed. So it's possible that, uh, and I think one of the arguments is that when she walked 240 feet with, um, with her phone at one point or with her watch, we don't know which device it was, that she was maybe taking that downstairs, putting it in the dishwasher. And that's why we don't have the Moscow Mule glass. But there's not that smoking gun. The smoking glass isn't there 
because you don't have a glass where they can test the inside and go, yep, this is where the fentanyl was. And she said she gave him a Moscow mule. Here it is. It's right here in the glass. We know she did it. There's that missing piece. So that's why they're trying to build out motive. And that's why they're trying to show all of the information that would have caused her to want to do this because they don't have that glass with the fentanyl residue in it that they can say this is the exact connection for how Corey Richens gave this to Eric. Uh, Jenny Wilson chiming in, Harvard Lawyer Lee, best hair in true crime. <laughs> um, right back at you, Harvard Lawyer Lee. Um, question for you. Um, how problematic are these, you know, these dueling civil uh, cases in light of the um, criminal trial? We had, I believe, some prosecutors and attorneys on who said, look, the state is salivating right now because if they can depose her, anything that they get can be used in the criminal trial. Um, can you kind of expound on that? It's definitely a risk for a defendant. And I think Greg mentioned that there have been stays put into place that's pretty common in a situation where you have a pending criminal trial while there are pending civil cases. But one of the things it's given the opportunity to do because the state has buttoned down a lot of the facts and they haven't released a lot of that information. They've just given out little nuggets, but there was the chance for the Richens family to put a whole bunch of that out in the public view through the complaint because the complaint had all those details about what life insurance policies there were about the the $250,000 loan that was made against the house, all of those sorts of things we got straight from that civil complaint. So the civil complaint has been really important in getting information out. And that's also to me, uh, this battle, uh, this case is being fought in the public eye. And it's not something where Corey Richens attorneys can just sit back and say, well, we'll wait for trial because opinions are being formed. And this is a very, um, sensational case that's getting a lot of public attention and the civil cases are part of what's doing that and part of what's feeding the actual information that the media has. Uh, Greg, uh, this sounds like a question more for Joni Johnson, but I'm curious um, since you know the family, um, why do you think her husband didn't leave her before? We talked about this earlier. Um, if she had been previously poisoning him, is there any evidence of mental illness in her past? Do we know anything um, about her previous or prior relationships and uh, how, how did they go if we do? We don't know too much about her. We know that uh, when, when Eric met her, she was a clerk at the local Home Depot. He was a contractor, very well-to-do man, uh, befriended her. They ultimately fell in love, got married. He sort of set her up in her real estate business and got her going there. Of course, she was, didn't do particularly well at it by all financial accounts. Um, and, and but, but in terms of any history that we have or knowledge we have about her mental illness, there, there's, there's no history of that at all. And, and I, I probably, Dr. Joni could answer this better than I, but uh, this isn't the type of mental illness that necessarily would be diagnosed or would be part of a, of a history or would have been checked because she didn't have a criminal history either. So uh, it's not something that had been come up or that had come up or had been really looked at closely prior to this. And Greg, real quick while I have you, by the way, Dom's mom says Eric was re very religious Mormon. They don't take divorce lightly, which is another interesting point. But Shaquille O'Meal, Greg says, uh, didn't Corey say that he had had a history of drug issues? How are prosecutors going to prove that he didn't have drug issues despite what Corey said? I do believe I've heard that reporting as well, that she, she did claim that. But 
you know, she doesn't seem to be all there. But what do you know about that? You know, she's been all over the place on that. On the one hand, she she has said that. On the other hand, she said she was unaware of any prior drug history. All I can tell you is, Joe, no one who knows Eric, including his best friends, including his sisters, including his parents, have ever seen him uh, use drugs, have ever perceived him to be uh, using drugs. Uh, there's no criminal history of drug abuse. And in fact, he, he was really the picture of health before, before he was murdered. Uh, we're going to start to wrap up in just a little bit in light of the fact that I've got a second show coming up here. Uh, Adam Bluefire, very kind. You're like the Clark Kent of true crime. The only problem is I never turn into Superman. I just stay like Clark. That's the only problem. Uh, Dr. Joni Johnston, um, to quote this lawsuit again, the civil suit um, that was brought by uh, Eric Richens' family, they say that Corey committed the foregoing acts in calculated, systematic fashion and for no reason other than to actualize a horrific endgame, to conceal her ruinous debt, misappropriate, misappropriate assets for the benefit of her personal business, orchestrate Eric's demise, and profit from his passing. Uh, very harsh, basically saying this is a greedy woman. I'm wondering, she's sitting in a jail right now uh, awaiting a murder trial. What do you think is going on in her mind? I mean, she, she did this... It's seemingly all for money. When you're incarcerated, what good does it do you anyway? So what, what do you think her thought process, if you had to go into her mind, uh, is at this point? Well, I think previous to this, I think probably her thinking, if she did in fact commit this murder, was that she wouldn't get caught. Because people oftentimes say, aren't people so afraid of going to prison that they wouldn't do something like that? And unfortunately, I think we you know, probably all agree that the thought of prison isn't a deterrent for many, many people because they, they just convince themselves that I'm going to get, nobody's going to catch me. I'm too smart for this. I'm too clever for this. I'm too, you know, I can plan it out well, you know, well enough. Now it'd be interesting to see where she's coming from. And I think that's going to, I think, depend on a couple of different things. One is, you know, her behavior after um, this, her husband's death has, was just, if in fact the allegations are true, is just kind of astonishing. We've already talked about that just in terms of her, you know, kind of being open about it, talking about the grief, the children's book and all that kind of stuff. So I wonder at this point, how much denial she has still about what's happening to her. You know, if, if she is still in this mindset of, I can beat this, I can continue to maintain my innocence. I can talk my way through this. I can lie my way out of this. Somehow I'm going to um, find my way out of this because I think it would be very difficult for her as somebody, I think, who, from what we you know, know, sees herself sympathetically, you know, sees herself as a victim, um, sees herself as, you know, other people causing things to happen to her that are not her fault. This is a story I would imagine that she tells herself quite often. So I don't know if she's still telling herself that story that somehow she's in the situation through no fault of her own. At some point, though, you know, reality is going to have to come home to her. And so it's hard to gauge at what stage she's in right now. It may be that, you know, this is something that maybe Lee could speak to or Greg could speak to. It may be the conversations that she's having with her attorneys over time as the evidence mounts. And they're talking about the potential death penalty versus life without parole and those kinds of things that maybe she begins, it begins to sink into her. But I wouldn't be too surprised right now if she's still telling herself that there's a way out of this, that she's going to be found not guilty still. It's interesting because if I didn't know you were talking about uh, Corey Richens, I think you might be talking about Lori Vallow Daybell. Mm -hmm. And now the uh, media spotlight has dimmed a little bit 
And I wonder what's going on in uh, that little cell of hers. Uh, shout out to Hope for becoming a YouTube member. Uh, Greg, to Joni's point, do you find with criminal defendants that, um, I don't know, there's this um, disbelief maybe on their part that they've done anything wrong, but as you talk to them and counsel them, they start to understand the gravity of their crimes. Have you found that? Yeah, I don't think that's uncommon at all. I don't know that there are a lot of people that just go into something with just pure evil in their hearts. I mean, uh, you know, I do a lot of white collar uh, crime cases and seems like a lot of those people start with a good idea and it ends up going south and they rob Peter to pay Paul literally. And one thing leads to another. A lot of homicide cases are, are really not particularly well thought out. In this case, you know, a poisoning seems like something that no one would really pay much attention to uh, in America and at that period of time. And even today, you know, opioid uh, overdoses were a dime a dozen. So people aren't really, uh, you know, you can give him a little extra fentanyl or five times a lethal dose of fentanyl, he dies of a drug overdose. But, you know, sometimes people just justify it thinking, well, I, I need the money. Uh, he's got a lot of money and I'm going to do well and and no one's going to be the wiser and almost like no conscience at all in a crime like this. Mm. Uh, Wolf Girl, love Harvard Lawyer Lee. Uh, Harvard Lawyer Lee, so this isn't the only uh, civil suit. It comes less than three weeks after Corey Richens filed her own suit against uh, the estate. Uh, she is seeking half the equity in the couple's $1.9 million home and $2 million in proceeds from the sale of Eric's share of a stonemasonry business after his death, uh, all of his tangible personal property, and more. Um, again, is this something that you would expect, or is this totally out of the bounds, especially considering the circumstances of her being accused of murder? If, if you think that there's a possibility that she didn't commit the murder, it's totally normal because there are legitimate issues around it where she might argue that the um, prenuptial agreement that they signed wouldn't apply, that it, depending on whether, uh, on the fact that he predeceased her, some of those are very reasonable. And in fact, it may make a lot of sense for her to argue those things as part of a plan to convince people that she is not guilty, that she really didn't commit this because the innocent person really would have been wronged in this way and really would be entitled to this or that and therefore might sue. So I don't, I don't think it's strange and I don't think it's uppity, you know, if you will, I don't think it's somebody who's just choosing to do this um, because they're that entitled. I think there's a legal basis for it that would be rooted in someone who's innocent. Now, on the other hand, if she's guilty, is it uppity? Is it entitled? Yep. All of those things. Um, from misdemeanor, right back at you, Harvard lawyer Lee. Can Eric's family sue Fentanyl Fatal Corey for all the proceeds she got from her children's book? I think that's part of it, right? They they have named that in their suit. That's one of the things they asked for was any any proceeds from the book. I don't think there will be significant proceeds because, as I understand it, Amazon pulled it. So I don't think all that many were sold prior to the time she became so sensational in the book got pulled. So I don't think there'd be a lot there, but they have asked for that as part of their suit. Yeah, I don't think it is available. Um, Greg, to you, uh, Chelsea Whitaker just got here. Have you already talked about how Eric didn't list the house as an asset 
in the prenup. I have to be honest, I wasn't aware of that. Are you aware of this, uh, Greg? Well, I mean, he had the marital home, and it was a family home. And there was the, the home that they were trying to purchase in uh, in neighboring Wasatch County wouldn't have been involved in the prenup because they weren't even it wasn't even contemplated at the time. Uh, the the marital home, I think he felt if it wasn't included in the prenup was uh, should be kept with the boys, and so maybe he felt that that was a reason to to keep it with Corey and, and not mention it in the in the prenup and make sure that. If, if, he, if he predeceased her, she would have the benefit of the home during her life. So I, I don't know the reason why it would or would not have been uh, put in the prenup. I'm just surmising. Uh, Tilo from Boston, uh, she was a cashier at Home Depot. She scored with him. It just wasn't enough. Evil, greedy, selfish. Uh, looks, Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, Lori Vallow for misdemeanor, implying that they were all not uh, unattractive, and then followed here by Olive Heatley, sheep's and wolf's uh, clothing. Um, back to that comment about being a worker at Home Depot. Um, Joni, do you think that she sort of perceived herself as hitting the jackpot with him? He comes from a uh, wealthy family. He was very well off. Um, she was obviously working a modest wage job, and now she, again, hit the lottery and wanted to take him for all he's worth. Do you think that was kind of going on uh, in her brain cycle? Well, you know, it's hard to say what was going on at the time. I mean, this was many years ago before they had three children together. And so it's very possible that all the above could be true, meaning she could have genuinely loved him at some point. She could have been attracted to him at some point. She could have also uh, been attracted to his success. I think it is very difficult sometimes when we meet people to tease all those parts out. You know, what is attractive to us may be not just the money part, but just the success part. This is somebody who's an entrepreneur. This is somebody who's a go-getter, who's disciplined, who, you know, all those things I think are attractive. So could there have been an evolution over time? I'm sure she felt very lucky from all that people have said um, that have been publicly talking about this. He also treated her very well and seemed to really care about her. So to have somebody in your life that loves you and cares about you and treats you well any of us would think we've gotten the jackpot. So how much of it was the money, which I'm sure was attractive, and how much of it was the whole package? Initially, it's hard to say. I certainly think if the allegations are true, uh, the money became more and more important to her over time. And, and perhaps the story she told herself was that Eric wasn't the loving, wonderful person that she thought he was, because if he was, maybe he'd be giving her all of his money, right, and supporting her all the time. Um, Betsy Crutcher, right back to you, Joni Johnson. Is there any truth to the news that you wanted to kill the kids too? I haven't heard that, but there was a question earlier that said, why wasn't she thinking about the repercussions, what it would do to her three children? Um, why don't people think about that? I think people, I mean, it's hard. This is such a hard question. It's such a good question. You know, I'm a mom of four kids as well as a forensic psychologist. And so my heart just hurts for these boys whose lives will be forever changed, as we've already talked about. Um, there'll be different people as a result of this, although I do think kids are very resilient. Um, but I think, you know, we, we see this over and over again, not necessarily to this level in terms of poisoning him, but in terms of people, who, spouses who murder each other. Are there in a custody battle and one person kills the other person? There's a murder-suicide. And I think what happens is people become so um, obsessed or enraged that their emotions take over and they, they aren't thinking about all they're thinking about is themselves 
whether that's surviving, whether that's thriving, whether that's getting money, whether that's getting a new love interest or whatever, they become so focused on that that everything and everybody else goes away. Uh, for those who don't know, you know now, Greg Scordis, he represents uh, the family of the deceased husband, Eric Richens. Uh, he's practiced law since 82 as a public defender. You heard he does pro bono work because he's a good guy. And uh, we love him for coming on the show. Um, Greg here, Roxanne A says, I think Eric told others she's trying to poison him. That'll come into testimony. Uh, do you think it will? And uh, how far out do you think this trial is, this criminal trial? Uh, I'll start at the end. I, uh, there's not even a trial set. We don't even have a preliminary hearing set. Uh, that may be in October. So I, I doubt we'll have a trial this calendar year. Uh, more likely it'll be sometime next spring. But that's an area of the state, the Summit County, uh, Park City, the big ski resort is one of the bigger cities there that uh, has really just one or two judges at any given time. Their trial calendar is not particularly backlogged. So if, if she wants a speedy trial, she'll get one. Um, the other question dealt with the, whether or not that statement by Eric would come in. I'm sure that, that uh, Corey's attorney is going to fight that as hearsay and inadmissible and say, well, I, you know, there's no way to, to, to cross-examine that because we, he's not here to talk about it. Uh, and, and I don't know how, how that will come in. A judge is going to have to decide the reliability of it, whether the person that heard it is in a position to attest to its reliability and whether maybe several people heard it or in what in what capacity that statement was made. But it, it sort of on its face, it looks like hearsay. They're going to have to find a way to get it in. The state will. Uh, Dr. Joni Johnston, uh, she is a forensic psychologist, the mom of four, as you just heard, a private investigator, a crime writer. She's the author of Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Ask. And she hosts her own YouTube channel, Unmasking a Murderer. And she does look a little like Ashley Judd. Uh, just for so y'all know, because I was wondering this, Anna Lissette clarifying a little bit, the Gerber life plan of insuring kids has been described as kind of a savings account that could, kids could cash as adults uh, for college expenses. Uh, so that makes sense. And then Dr. Joni Johnson, the final question, could Eric have stayed uh, due to dynamics of quote-unquote cycles of abuse, maybe he thought she had changed. Uh, is that a possibility? And your final thoughts? You know, that's a very good question, and it certainly is possible that was part of the dynamics. Um, I think that, you know, as I said earlier, I think relationships are so complicated. And I think when you have three children that are young um, and that you share, if you have very strong religious beliefs, values, I mean, it is so complicated. Could that be one reason? Yes. Um, but I, I would say that it's more complicated than that. Um, and it's hard to leave somebody that you care about. And I think, you know, no matter what was going on with them, I think he, it seems like he genuinely cared about Corey. Well, well said. Um, Lee Wallace, what can you say about her? People have said she has the best hair. I can't disagree with that. Mm -hmm. She's also got one of the best brains. She graduated first in her class at Vanderbilt, cum laude from Harvard Law School, a top 100 lawyer. And her YouTube channel, Harvard Lawyer Lee, is where she breaks down uh, complex legal matters. Uh, this is an interesting question. Can a prenup still hold water, Harvard Lawyer Lee, after the death of a spouse? I'm assuming not if she's convicted of this crime. If she's convicted of the crime, then 
generally speaking, there are laws that kick in and that prevent her from recovering from the estate. So she can't com commit the murder of the person and then get their money and their worldly goods. It doesn't work that way. So as far as whether or not the prenup will be in effect, there was an allegation. We don't know a lot about the prenup. We, it was mentioned in the Katie Richens lawsuit. So we know that there was one. And, but we don't know a lot about what's in it or what the provisions were. It talked about the fact that she would get, if he predeceased her, she would get the interest in his company. And so then if, but if she murdered him, then under the law, I believe, and we, we can get clarification on this from Graham, but I believe under the state law that she's, if she's found to have murdered him, she's deemed to have predeceased him, even if technically she's still alive. I think that's how the law works there. Is, am, I, am I right on that? Okay. Great, Greg. Greg, giving the thumbs up there. Uh, Julie Frew, uh, we're going to get to this on Friday with Detective Phil Waters and former FBI agent Scott Duffy. Judge uh, Judge Judge issued a partial stay over uh, Brian Koberger proceedings. Uh, what does that mean? I'm sure Harvard Lawyer Lee is going to break that down on her channel, but we're going to do it uh, on ours Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. A quick programming note. Once is not enough, so we'll do it twice today. I'll be back at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Slightly different topic, but I'll tell you this. If uh, the United States government comes out and shows us all uh, an alien or a UFO from uh, a different planet, uh, it's going to change a lot of things. It'll probably be a pretty big story. We, we might not be worrying about Republicans and Democrats quite as much uh, anymore. And uh, who knows what it'll do. But we're going to find out when we speak to Ross Colthart. Uh, the investigative reporter from Australia who broke this story wide open, and it could be the biggest story in the world if it comes to fruition. Until then, till 8 o'clock tonight, love you, America. Love you, Salt Lake City, Utah. Love you, Atlanta, Georgia, and San Diego, California, and everywhere in between. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.